You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's resident Tampa market president, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's accounting advisory practice leader. On this week's episode, we're here with Michael Landers, a managing director in our FAS practice to discuss accounting for temporary equity. Adam, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So let's go ahead and kick things off with the basics like we always do. Can you run through exactly what is temporary equity and why we're here to talk about it today? Yeah, so temporary equity is basically a separate classification of certain equity instruments, um, those that have a requirement to be redeemed for cash or other assets. The SEC actually put forth this guidance and it's been codified into the by the FASB into ASC 480. Um, one thing you need to think about when, you know, temporary equity would come up in an analysis is it's generally performed after a company has gone through um, the assessment of whether an equity instrument was in the scope of ASC 480. So we've had a previous podcast where we talked about whether, you know, certain contracts are liability or their equity under that guidance. That would be kind of your step one. If you didn't fall into that guidance and you had an equity instrument, you kind of then move forth looking at the temporary equity guidance. And if you have an instrument that does qualify as temporary equity, it it literally is just that you separate it from your permanent equity on your balance sheet and present it separately as this temporary or what's often referred to as the mezzanine equity, which falls between your liabilities and your permanent equity. Okay. So you mentioned the SEC in your introduction. Can yep. you go ahead and clarify who should be concerned about temporary equity guidance? And are we only talking about public companies here or is there an impact for private companies as well? Yeah. So the temporary equity guidance does apply to all SEC registrants. So definitely something that they're all well aware of and you know having to evaluate. Uh, but that doesn't mean that private companies are necessarily off the hook either. So there can be a few situations where a private company kind of could be pulled into the temporary equity guidance and have to think through it themselves. Um, so one of the most common situations is when a private company is a subsidiary of a SEC registrant and that private company issues their own equity instruments that are redeemable. Um, by consolidation of that subsidiary by the, the SEC registrant, that private company would have to apply the temporary equity guidance to those equity instruments. Uh, keep in mind, if that private company also issued their own separate financial statements just for themselves, you know they wouldn't necessarily have to apply that guidance um, because they aren't an SEC registrant themselves, but because they're consolidated into other people's reporting, they would have to apply for that reporting. Uh, another common situation is when a private company gets acquired. So by an SEC registrant. So in typical situations for that, you know, there's a rule, rule 305 for significant acquirees or rule 309 for significant equity method investments where um, an entity would be required to file or furnish their own financial statements um, as an SEC registrant of those significant acquisitions or significant equity method investments. And they would have to apply this uh, temporary equity guidance in those financial statements. Um, And then I'd say probably another common situation we do see come up is when we're assisting clients, particularly that are looking to enter the capital markets. So someone that's contemplating an IPO 
or maybe looking to enter into a SPAC transaction. Um, you know, in contemplation of that, those those private entities will also have to apply the temporary equity guidance if those financial statements are going to be included in any of those filings. Um, I will say, if you don't meet any of those situations, you know, technically as a private company, you can ignore the temporary equity guidance. Um, but what we'll often recommend um, as accounting advisors and you know, auditors as well share a lot of these sentiments is that it is highly recommended, even if you aren't in the scope of this SEC guidance, that you should apply it by analogy as a private company, because the overall purpose of the guidance is really just to provide more meaningful information um, about the outstanding equity instruments of the, of the entity itself. And that's what this guidance really gets at, is more meaningful information. More meaningful information and additional disclosures. So why did the SEC decide that it was important to actually issue this guidance on temporary equity? And how did this all start? Give us the details. Yeah, so the SEC started looking at um, a lot of different equity instruments, you know, even going back to our previous podcast discussion on liabilities versus equity, you know, when they're thinking about like mandatoryable redeemable instruments. Um, as well as other redeemable instruments back in you know the late 70s. Um, it really was just kind of an uptick in the issuance of certain instrument types. So there were, you know, at that time, a lot of convertible preferred shares, redeemable preferred shares that were being issued as a ways for entities to finance themselves. So whether they were financing for capital improvements or just overall growth or to close merger and acquisition type transactions, a lot of those instruments were being issued. And Prior to having this guidance, there really was no distinction between how a regular equity instrument and an equity instrument that could require redemption were presented and kind of put forth to users of the financial statements. Um, but the SEC did recognize that there is significant differences between an equity instrument that inherently has an obligation because it has a redemption provision in it that would require the entity to pay cash or you know, provide other assets to redeem that instrument versus regular equity. And so they came up with the rules around temporary equity in order to really highlight those differences and provide more meaningful information to users of the financial statements. Okay, Michael, let's go ahead and switch gears some to how one actually evaluates whether something meets the scope of the temporary equity guidance. Let's start with a broad outline for how that works and some of the nuances that maybe we should think about. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're looking at these instruments, you know, first thing you want to look at, um, is there any guidance that would require the instrument to be classified as a liability? Um, if there isn't, there's nothing prescribed out there that says, hey, put this up in your liability section. Um, you should, it'll be in scope for assessing for temporary equity treatment. Um, moving forward, <clears throat> excuse me, um, equity instruments that fall within scope of, of this guidance, you need to assess them for two things. First, at the issuer level, and then at the instrument level. Adam kind of touched on it already at the, the issuer, issuer level, and what we mean by that, right, is uh, the guidance is in scope for SEC registrants, as well as some uh, uh, non-public companies, uh, the exceptions, again, Adam walked through. But at the instrument level, it's important to really note here that temporary equity guidance applies to all uh, equity classified instruments. Um, in fact, the guidance has really no exemptions um, for these types of instruments, um, so they're all in scope. And instead, the, you know, it clarifies that the guide in the guidance um, and how it interacts with codification topics. Um, and actually, in the guidance, you'll find you know there's a lot of specific uh, examples of different types of uh, 
uh, specific instruments and how you treat them with this guidance. I love it. So let's talk a little bit about those equity instru instruments. And shameless plug here, if you haven't listened to the podcast on equity instruments, I'd highly encourage our listeners to go check it out. But that said, what are some of the common examples of those that are in scope of the type of equity instruments and those that might not be? Yeah, so the more boring common ones, right? Preferred stock, common stock, NCI. Uh, some of the more sexy ones, right? Might be securities held by employee stock ownership plans, um, as well as equity classified share-based payment arrangements uh, with employees. All of that is subject to the guidance that we're talking about here. In addition, you could have certain convertible debt instruments uh, that could have uh, separately classified equity components. That would also be subject to the guidance. Um, but then on the flip side of that, you have a few things that are not in scope for temporary, temporary equity guidance, um, those including any kind of freestanding instrument that would fall under guidance uh, or be classified as an asset or a liability, um, as well as freestanding derivative instruments that are equity classified. Okay, so Michael, I know that we've mentioned instruments that are liabilities or assets pursuant to other areas of GAAP are excluded, but why would freestanding derivatives that are classified in equity not be evaluated? Well, first off, freestanding derivative instruments is really hard to say, so we can't put it in all <laughs> the different areas of the guidance, right? But um, truthfully, freestanding derivative instruments uh, are evaluated under separate guidance, ASC 815-40. Um, you go through that analysis, you're looking at the redemption features of the instruments um, in, in that. So. Um, you know, if it's in the scope of that ASC 815 guidance, you don't, and, and then coming out of that guidance, you would classify it um, as equity. You don't have to go through and again, look at it under this temporary equity guidance. So you're going through, you're looking at the redemptions already there. That's all you have to do. Okay, that's helpful, Michael, I appreciate it. So Adam, let's switching gears back over to you. Let's okay. say we have an instrument that is in scope of the temporary equity guidance. How do we decide if it should actually be classified as temporary or permanent equity? I guess step one you really have to think about here is just looking at your instrument holistically and really understanding all the different terms and potential redemption features, including any bifurcated redemption features that may exist with that equity instrument. Um, and it's important to do this because the SEC is very kind of explicit around the fact that each redemption feature that you identify needs to be separately evaluated. Um, so, you know, certain redemption features may not push you into the temporary equity guidance, but as you go through each one that may be present, there could be one that does trip that in which the whole instrument would then be in temporary equity. So it's important that you you definitely know, you know what are all your uh, possible redemption features and then go through those one by one. Um, another thing that you kind of have to think about is really like who controls that redemption. So the guidance is really clear on that. If there's any possibility that a triggering event or condition that exists, if it's not solely within the control of the issuer themselves, um, that instrument is going to require that the, the instrument is classified as temporary equity. And we talk about, you know, control from the perspective of the issuer's control. I think it's, you know, important to also highlight here is that, you know, it doesn't conversely mean that you have to look that the holder of the instrument necessarily has control. It's more so focused on the issuer here. And that, that being said, it, it, it just goes to illustrate that there could be certain triggering events or conditions that neither the issuer nor the holder controls, but that could still push you into temporary equity classification. 
Okay, so clearly redemption here is important to understand. Yeah. So how does one actually identify all of the redemption features of their instrument? Good question. <laughs> so redemption features really aren't defined anywhere in the guidance themselves. Obviously, we use that terminology a lot. You'll see that in, um, you know, in the language used by the SEC as well, but it doesn't actually provide a definition for what is a redemption feature. And I think that's possibly purposeful. Um, and, and I say that because, you know, the, the, the genesis behind a redemption feature is just to find anything that could require a future cash obligation of the issuer, right? Like there's something in the security that is going to require them to put forth cash or possibly other assets. And that redemption feature is obviously going to make that instrument much different than permanent equity. So Adam, clearly redemption here is very important to understand. So how does one identify all the redemption features of their instrument? Yeah, I guess one of the interesting things is that the guidance itself actually doesn't provide a definition of what the term redemption feature actually means. Um, so when you're thinking about what is a redemption feature, you really have to think about what's the purpose of the temporary equity guidance, which is really just to highlight any instrument where there's a potential future cash obligation that's going to be attached to that instrument. Um, and you would want to identify that because then you can separate that from other, other aspects of your permanent equity. I think it's important also to recognize is that a, a lot of like legal contracts, you know, if, if you're searching for where are all my redemption features in my instrument? You know, it's not always as easy as sometimes looking for the word redemption in that contract, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, sometimes it is, you know, sometimes there are provisions where they have redemption clauses, but a lot of times there can be other terms or aspects of, of an instrument's um, provisions that actually provide redemption features that aren't called redemption features. So looking at call options and put options, for example, um, different liquidation type clauses. So liquidation provisions potentially could pull you into the scope of this guidance. Uh, conversion features as well um, could have a redemption aspect to them. So you really have to think like, you know, going back to my comment on looking at the instrument holistically, it's, it's really taken the time to kind of, you know, sift through the agreements of that instrument and identify where all these potential redemption features exist. Um, and like I said, that's, that's important because once you've identified that population, then you're obviously going through each one separately um, to make sure whether or not it's going to trigger this, this uh, temporary equity classification. So Michael, switching back over to you, are there any redemption features that we don't have to consider or is everything fair game? Uh, Zach, no, not everything is fair game here. Um, the guidance does provide some specific exceptions. Um, so some of the more common type uh, provisions or redemption features that are explicitly excluded include um, uh, ordinary liquidations. So, you know, these are just your classic equity instrument entitling your holder to it, to cash uh, or other assets upon the termination and liquidation of the company. Uh, so those remaining net assets and how they're distributed out to the different equity holders. Um, and then another uh, exclusion in the guidance is uh, certain share-based payment awards. So these are equity-classified share-based payment arrangements under ASC 718. Um, these are ones that have an obligation to deliver registered shares. Um, and then again, under a, the same guidance, 718, another exception is um, it, it allows for any direct or indirect repurchase of shares. 
solely to satisfy the employer's statutory tax withholding requirements. Okay, Michael. So once the population of redemption features has been sorted out, what do you look at when assessing each of those? Yeah, Zach, so after you've identified uh, those redemption features for an equity classified instrument that's in scope, an issuer needs to assess whether they have control uh, of the triggering event um, solely for that redemption feature. Um, and, it, and you also need to determine, do the holders of the instrument control the board of directors? So what are some examples of events that are in, solely in control of the issuer and those that aren't? Yeah, so a couple of examples uh, where it's solely in control of the issuer might be redemption um, at the issuer's option, uh, redemption only if a dividend is declared. Um, but again, you really have to assess and make sure that the holder of the uh, instruments do not have control of the board. So those redemption examples I just gave you are examples where they don't have control of the board. So the evaluation of whether the event is solely within the control of the issuer uh, is based on the relevant governance structure applicable to the issuing entity. Uh, so you, when you think about a typical corporate structure, right, you have individuals charged with governance, typically your board of directors, you really have to assess, do these guys unilaterally uh, prevent the redemption um, of occurring at all times? On the flip side, examples of events not solely in control of the issuer might include things like redemption only for the, at the holder's option. Uh, there could be a redemption based on a change of control, uh, redemption based on the default of a credit agreement, or there could be an, uh, a condition, right, where like an IPO registration um, effective date uh, doesn't meet a certain criteria date within the redemption feature. Uh, really want to highlight, too, those last few examples. Uh, you'll notice that those are things that are outside the control of the holder. So not only outside the control of the issue, but the holder. Uh, that's important to note. Um, and you typically might hear those called uh, deemed liquidation events. Okay, Michael, let me pause you there. Deemed liquidations vary from ordinary liquidations, which are exempt from the temp temporary equity guidance, correct? Can you break down what a deemed liquidation event is and how we should actually be thinking about it? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. So a deemed liquidation event and an ordinary liquidation event are viewed differently. So you need to assess them differently and you'd be very careful while you're doing that evaluation. Um, under a deemed liquidation clause, all or some of the uh, equity holders are required or you know, have the option to exchange their equity instruments for cash or other assets. So a couple of examples of those right might be a change in control uh, where the issuing company still exists after the, the, the transaction is consummated, uh, violation of a debt covenant, uh, or delisting of an issuer's, issuer's securities from an exchange. Uh, deemed liquidation clauses really need to be reviewed similar to any other redemption feature that we've talked about here today uh, under the same guidance. So you really need to assess, is this under uh, the issuer's sole control? I do want to highlight, though, there is one caveat um, that exists for this, right? And it's uh, uh, it provides an additional limited exception uh, to a deemed liquidation clause. So under this exception, uh, a deemed liquidation clause does not trigger temporary equity classification if all the holders of equally or more subordinate equity instruments would be entitled to redeem and on redemption would get the same form of consideration. Okay, so Adam, back to you. I know several instruments have redemption features that permit settlement in cash or even shares. When this is in the issuer's control, is it fair to assume that share settlement and thus temporary equity classification isn't relevant? 
Uh, not always. <laughs> so, you know, you are correct. I think a lot of instruments these days, um, a lot of time provide optionality for how redemption might work, or you know, maybe it's a conversion with redemption. Um, but when you're thinking about a redemption clause that does provide settlement and equity at the option of the issuer, I mean, if it was at the option of the holder, it wouldn't matter. It would still be temporary equity. Um, but if it is at the option of the issuer, there is like additional criteria you have to think through. And it really focuses on whether, you know, the issuer themselves, you know, they're asserting that they're going to share settle of redemption, but do they actually have the ability to do that? And so there's specific guidance in a in a section of ASC 815. It's in ASC 815.40 that you definitely have to walk through and make sure that under all circumstances, there would never be a scenario where cash settlement um, could be required for that instrument because they're unable to share settle that redemption. Um, if there was forced cash settlement under any you know possible circumstance, then that um, equity instrument would be classified in temporary equity. So one common example I like to give here is, um, you know, one of those requirements is to ensure that there's enough authorized unissued shares to actually share settle. So if you've got a redemption feature that, you know, in lieu of getting the cash, you're going to get X amount of shares. Well, you need to make sure the entity actually has that many shares available to be issued to the, to the holder themselves. Um, in a lot of scenarios, there could be a situation where they don't and the issuer will assert like, well, we'll go get authorized for additional shares. We'll go to our shareholders and have them approve additional shares so we can settle this down the road. Um, unfortunately, when you've got things that require shareholder approval and you think about the context of control solely in the hands of the issuer, shareholder approval is not solely in control of the issuer. And so that would cause an instrument to fail. And that would require that to be um, classified outside permanent equity. Got it. So is there any consideration for probability or likelihood of the redemption happening? There's not. So that that is one thing the SEC is clear on is that when you're thinking about any possible um, cash settlement type scenarios like probability doesn't come into play here. If there's just the um, any possibility, no matter how remote, um, could trigger temporary equity guidance. Really the only time the concept of probability comes into play is, is when you're thinking about measurement of a temporary equity instrument, which I know we'll talk about uh, in a bit. Yeah, so speaking of that, is the classification assessment only applied at the issuance of the instrument for temporary equity? So the guidance actually isn't 100% explicit on this. Um, you know, it, it is clear on, you know, for measurement purposes that you do have to remeasure the award each reporting period. But when it comes to classification, it's, it's more or less silent. Um, I will say in practice what um, nearly everyone does and what the SEC views as acceptable is that, yes, you should reassess your uh, equity instruments each reporting period. And so the the... The analysis that people, or the analogy rather, that people make to come to that conclusion really is just looking at some of the interrelated guidance in ASC 81540, which also requires reassessment of, of certain features. So it's, it's just falling in line with that. Okay, this has all been great information to have. But Michael, let's move forward now and assume that we've got an instrument that's classified as temporary equity. Talk to me about the initial accounting and the things that go into that. 
Yeah. So now we're down to, you know, what is it actually going to look like on your balance sheet? Right. And, and, you know, similar to me in high school, you know, you're, you're hanging out and you're like, do I hang out with, with these folks over here? My, my liability friends, or I hang out <laughs> over here with my equity friends. And you're like, I, I don't know. I'll just hang out here in the middle. Right. And so that's typically where you see this classified, right. Cause you can't put, can't put it down in the equity sections. Mez equity, I think, you know, Adam, that's the, the other name given to it. So it sits right between the lib the liabilities and your equity. Um, but when you first recognize it, it's measured at and recorded at fair value. And so you're talking ASCA 20. So you review that. That's your fair value guidance. Um, I know we have a podcast out about that. So that's something you can look up. But, uh, you know, in most situations, the transaction price here is going to be equal to your fair value. Um, there are some some situations where you're going to allocate. They're, the initial measurement will have an allocation of proceeds. Uh, this is You'll find this where you have you know, one component is equity classified instrument that falls under the guidance, but it's issued at the same time as potentially a freestanding financial instrument. So there might be an allocation that has to happen of the relative fair value between those different instruments. Um, there is limited exceptions uh, to the initial measurement. Um, they do exist for certain instrument types, including share-based payment arrangements, certain convertible debt instruments with equity components, and uh, non-controlling interest, to name a few. Um, and then one last thing to highlight here, right, is it's it's generally appropriate for an entity to deduct from the related proceeds any direct uh, issuance costs from issuing these um, these these temporary equity uh, instruments, uh, and so you'll factor that into your your fair value on the initial measurement. Okay. So, but what about subsequent measurement? Are these instruments remeasured? They are. They are. So subsequent measurement is dependent upon a few things, right? So first off, is it currently redeemable? And if it's not currently redeemable, is it probable that it will become redeemable? And to go back and highlight, right, what Adam said, we're not talking about probability of it being redeemed. We're talking just probability of it becoming redeemable. Um, and so, um, you know, the purpose of the measurement really is to just ensure that the instrument uh, reflects the cash that would be required to pay off um, uh, the instrument's holder in, in the, the event that they redeemed it. Um, so going through kind of the, the different scenarios here, right, you have equity instruments that are currently redeemable. Those should be adjusted each reporting period uh, to the maximum redemption amount. Uh, so as of the balance sheet date, right? Um, and then for equity instruments that are not currently redeemable, if you've determined that it's not probable that it's going to be redeemable, then you really don't have to do anything with it. You just kind of leave it alone. Um, but conversely, if you determine that, hey, this, this thing that's currently not redeemable, we do think it's probable one day that it will be redeemable. There's, there's two acceptable approaches that you can go through to um, uh, update the measurement each subsequent period. So the first one of those that's acceptable is accreting the changes in the redemption value over the period, um, the date of issuance to the earliest redemption date um, possible. So you take that, that difference there and you're just accreting it little by little over, over the time. Um, usually the interest method is used um, to, to do that accretion. And then the, the other method that's acceptable is recognizing changes in the redemption value really just immediately um, as of that balance sheet date. So really every balance sheet date, you're just reassessing like hypothetically if, if our balance sheet date was the day of redemption, like how much would, would the redemption be for? So um, those are the two, two acceptable methods. And then at, when you do make that adjustment, the journal entries that go along with that, right, are, are, the, um, are, are 
treat it as if they were kind of a deemed dividend or a deemed contribution. And so your 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 other side of that journal entry. So temp equity is going to be one side of the journal entry, credit, debit, depending on if you're increasing or decreasing it. The other side of that is typically going to go towards your retained earnings. And in the case of you don't have retained earnings, then it should just be to pay it in capital. Okay. Thanks so much, Michael. That's helpful. Uh, so Adam, question to you then, since the issuers are required to reassess temporary equity classification each reporting period, how does the situations work when there is a change from permanent equity to temporary or vice versa? Yeah, that's a good point you actually bring up there is that, uh, you know, you're obviously doing that initial assessment, but there can be situations where potentially an instrument's classification changes. So if you think about like an example here, you know, if you had a like a redemption feature that was, you know, maybe contingent for a certain period of time. And then after that certain period of time, that redemption feature expires, um, you could potentially have a change in the classification of an instrument. So the way it works is if you're going from temporary equity to permanent equity, um, at the point in which you need to reclassify the instrument, you would remeasure it up to that point. And then it's simply just moving the geography on the balance sheet. So you kind of take it out of that loner pile in high school up by himself and you move him down to his equity <laughs> friends, as Michael said, That's right. um, to hang out in permanent equity. And, you know, generally when things are in permanent equity, there is no subsequent kind of remeasurement um, that is done um, in subsequent periods. On the flip side, if you've got something that maybe was originally in permanent equity and for whatever reason, it now meets the classification requirements to be in temporary equity, um, you're obviously going to change the geography again there and you would apply kind of the initial and subsequent measurement guidance that Michael just walked through on temporary equity, which is essentially, you know, you got to fair value that equity instrument at that time of reclassification. Okay, Adam, last question. But before we get there, the people want to know, <laughs> what were do they you know? part of the liability or <laughs> equity group in high school? Uh, I, I would say equity. Okay. Yeah. All right. Michael's yeah. walking the line. You're equity. I wasn't a troublemaker and I, I view a liability as a troublemaker. I was 100% a liability <laughs> in high school without a doubt. Just try to be a man of the people. There you, you know, go. Friends all over the place. I love it. I love it. So Adam, last question to you. Let's switch to some of the reporting implications of temporary equity. What are some of the reporting considerations issuers need to be aware of? Yeah, so we've, we've hit on the balance sheet, I think, quite a bit here, so won't, won't rehash that too much. But obviously, we've talked about you need to separate temporary equity from regular equity, right? You want to yep. take it out of any subtotals you may have with regular equity. Um, make sure it's very clear to users of the financial statements that this these equity instruments have some type of redemption feature associated with them. Um, you know, if you got multiple temporary equity instruments um, that are issued and outstanding for your reporting entity, you know, it may make sense to aggregate those on the balance sheet as, you know, one line item. Um, in circumstances where you do that, then you need to make sure, like, at least in the footnotes, you kind of break those out so there people are aware of what all makes up that temporary equity, that temporary equity balance. You know, from a disclosure standpoint, um, it, it there are some additional disclosures you do need to think through here. I mean, obviously, you're going to you know, with any equity instrument, really, you're always going to have discussion of the instrument and all the terms and conditions that, you know, associated with that instrument. So in, 
in, in the concept of a temporary equity instrument, it's going to be focusing on all those redemption features that exist um, and making sure that those are transparent. You know, you also want to include if there's, you know, certain deemed events that could cause redemption. It's not really just an option of somebody, but if there's deemed events like we talked about changing controls and credit defaults and things like that. You kind of put the those terms out there as well. Um, and then there's just disclosure around the instrument itself. So disclosing what's currently redeemable for that instrument, if it's known. Um, if you know an instrument is not currently redeemable, you're going to kind of explain the circumstances for why that is. Um, you know why it's not probable that it's going to be redeemed um, as well. Um, and then there's also an additional table that's required, a quantitative disclosure. So it's really just highlighting over the next five years. Um, what obligations for those temporary equity instruments are are going to be required to be paid. So anything that becomes redeemable over those next five years, um, what those amounts are. All right. Well, gentlemen, look, I think uh, this is a complicated topic, to say the least. I think you guys have done an exceptional job trying to break this down for us. So I appreciate you guys being here. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And just remember, uh, temporary equity. It's here today and gone tomorrow. <laughs> this podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series. And it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant, subsequent, authoritative guidance issued.